Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. And thanks for tuning in this week. The Pentagon Space Development Agency is only about a year and a half old, but on Friday, the agency awarded a contract that will go a long way toward fulfilling one of its main missions, building a new architecture of low-Earth orbit satellites that detect military threats and move data to and from the battlefield. The $18 million task order for mission systems engineering and integration went to Perspecta. It is one of several new contracts SDA is working on to build that new national defense space architecture. And as we'll talk about later in the hour, even though SDA is moving very quickly to make those contract awards, at least so far it's doing it all through the traditional government contracting process, not the newer vehicles like middle-tier acquisition or other transaction authorities that so many other DoD components have been using when they want to go fast. Ryan Prim is Deputy Director of the Space Development Agency. He talked with me about the new architecture and how SDA is building it. And Ryan, I would like you to spend a little bit of time at the front here talking about exactly what the Space Development Agency is. You know, you guys came into being kind of at the same time two other big space organizations did, and people may not be tracking roles and responsibilities of, of each of those three. So, so talk a little bit about kind of core roles and missions of SDA how you interact with Space Command, Space Force, other elements of DoD in the, in the space enterprise. Sure. Thank you, Garrett. So SDA, the Space Development Agency, was established in March of 2019 as really the department's constructive disruptor for space. Uh, you know, our national defense strategy has, has clearly articulated a need uh, for us to uh, deploy space capabilities much faster um, than we have traditionally, uh, primarily in response to um, adversarial threats, you know, both terrestrially and, and to our space systems. So SDA was established to get after that problem and in response to that problem. So we're primarily looking to build a um, proliferated architecture in space as a response to that problem and looking to, to feel capabilities to the warfighter. There's two primary uh, goals that we have in mind, and that's to deliver beyond line of sight targeting uh, solutions to our warfighters, and as well as uh, detect and track uh, advanced missile threats. Those are our two primary objectives, and all that's underpinned by, uh, by a proliferated uh, comm backbone that we're calling our transport layer to deliver those uh, capabilities to our warfighters. In the national defense space architecture that, that you're working on at the front here, my understanding of it, and, and tell me if this is a fair characterization, part of it's going to be building new stuff, building new technology, and part of it's going to be kind of orchestrating existing DoD capabilities with that new stuff. Is that a fair way to think about it? Yeah, that's a fair way. I mean, SDA's mission is to take uh, technologies that we think are readily available, that are commoditized, that can be mass produced, so that we can support a proliferated architecture and deploy those uh, rapidly so that we can give capabilities to the warfighters. Now, some of those capabilities we think are gaps that we can fill. Others, we think there's um, other folks in the community that are working on capabilities that if we integrate into the overall NDSA, we'd be able to provide those same capabilities. So our job is to orchestrate all of that. And when needed, uh, we'll actually develop and acquire, acquire and develop uh, space systems for that. But uh, yes, the largely the role is to orchestrate that. The, the commoditization piece is interesting. Do you have a sense yet for what share of the architecture that mass-produced commoditized hardware and software is going to make up of the architecture versus sort of exotic military unique capabilities? 
a lot of the infrastructure for the architecture we think can be commoditized. You know, we're leveraging a lot of what uh, DARPA Blackjack uh, was doing. And there we've, we've seen that the, the spacecraft buses, what we're seeing is a lot of the other infrastructure pieces in terms of uh, components of that, um, the supply chains that support that, as well as optical crosslinks and some of those technologies that can um, underpin this uh, proliferated architecture are commoditized. Now, there are some specific components that uh, that we need to provide a specific capability to the warfighters. Uh, you know, we're looking at um, implementing tactical data links from space uh, in Tranche Zero, our first tranche that we're going to put up. Uh, we're doing that with Link 16 and uh, the integrated broadcast service. So a lot of those are DoD unique applications, but we are driving towards uh, creating a marketplace that supports that, not not single vendors. Uh, we very much want to afford that, uh, avoid that, and create an environment where uh, there's a whole market um, that can provide that, whether they're commoditized or maybe even commoditized for military applications. This this may seem like an obvious question, but it's probably worth spending a minute on it anyway. Can you talk a bit about what, what you see as the benefits of having sort of a massively distributed constellation out there versus a couple of multi-billion dollar satellites and ground stations? Sure. I mean, the primary one is, is resilience. You know, whether uh, in a proliferated architecture, if a single node isn't providing all your mission capability. So if that node went away for whatever reason, uh, maybe it just died from, uh, you know, natural causes, as it were, in space, uh, it's a graceful degradation in, in mission capability in a proliferated architecture. It's sort of the, avoids the all eggs in one basket. The other uh, aspect that benefits from, from proliferation is you have to stand up a, an ecosystem to support that. So we have an ability to do technology refresh uh, much more rapidly um, because we're always fielding capabilities in two-year tranches. So we have an opportunity to put up the latest and greatest and uh, spiral up to the mission desired mission performance. So we, we'll hit our schedule um, if we have to sacrifice a little bit of performance, be it sensitivity on a sensing layer or what have you, uh, we can make that up on the next tranche and that's only two years away. Yeah, that's actually where I wanted to go to next is this sort of rapid iterative tranche approach. Talk a bit more about um, why, why the department's choosing that path. I think there's uh, an overall recognition that uh, that the warfighters are, are clamoring for capabilities and that sometimes the good enough solution in you know in the American warfighter's hands is actually better than the perfect solution too late. So there's a conscious shift uh, to explore this, uh, as I mentioned, in terms of us, SDA being the constructive disruptor, we're sort of given that mantle to try to uh, put capabilities out there faster. <clears throat> and so uh, that's what we're going to do. So let's talk a little bit about the contract award that you guys um, that you guys made last week to Perspecta for mission systems engineering and integration. Where does that fit into this architecture and, and how does it help get you started? Sure. So... Tranche Zero, our warfighter immersion tranche, is the first set of capabilities that we're going to put up to demonstrate uh, this proliferated architecture. That tranche, Tranche Zero, consists of two space segments. There's a, a transport uh, layer, which consists of 20 satellites that provide that comm mesh, work, uh, mesh network backbone, uh, 20 satellites that have optical crosslinks and uh, tactical data links to talk to the tactical users as well as a tracking layer that has consists of eight satellites with wide field of view OPIR sensors for uh, detection and tracking of advanced missile threats. 
one ground segment that's provided by the Naval Research Lab through an MOA that we have with NRL, and that's to use their Blossom Point tracking facility to fly and operate this TransZero satellite, and then a launch segment that's out for industry proposals right now to actually put uh, the, deliver these satellites on orbit at the end of FY22. So the job of the MSDNI is really to pull all those segments together to form an integrated and interoperable uh, TransZero system. Can you talk about that philosophy a little bit, why, why you decided to go with a vendor to do all that integration work rather than having the government be the, the integrator? Yeah, absolutely. So the MSDNI is a fairly unique scope. Uh, there's traditional systems engineering integration work that needs to be done. There are segments that are being developed under separate contracts that uh, have interfaces that need to be defined and verified. And then all that needs to be pulled together to deliver uh, an overall TransZero mission system. But it's important that that uh, contractor that, or that person that's pulling all of that together has a, a performer mentality, right? There is a it has to be a focus on delivery, not just engineering support or program facilitation. So we thought it was important to actually get an industry partner on board that could actually help us pull all that together that has that sort of focus on delivery and and can pull all these systems together. And, and breaking Tranche Zero into multiple contracts, that was a choice, I, I assume. You, get, you guys must have thought about the possibility of just doing one large award for integration and transport and tracking and ground. Why, why did you ultimately decide to break this into four smaller contracts? We ultimately uh, broke it up because of the, the different aspects that we wanted to achieve through the various contracts. Uh, through the solicitation and award of the transport and tracking uh, uh, contracts, we really wanted to, to procure those on firm fixed price contracts. We wanted to demonstrate that we could deliver those on a fixed schedule under a fixed cost and that industry could support that. We wanted multiple vendors. And, and so that, that was the way to go about. Uh, we, we also knew that we wanted to leverage what was out there. Um, NRL is a very um, helpful mission partner. And so we wanted to take advantage of their capabilities for the ground. And so by having made those choices, that was the best thing, the way to get the best value for the government and ultimately deliver TransZero most effectively. Ryan Prim is Deputy Director of the Space Development Agency. Short break, and we'll come back in just a minute and talk about how SDA is managing to move through the acquisition process as quickly as it is using plain old FAR-based contracts. That's next on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Servio. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Servu, talking in this part of the hour with Ryan Prim, the Deputy Director of the Space Development Agency, about a contract SDA just awarded to Perspecta. It's a big piece of the puzzle for building the new National Defense Space Architecture the SDA was chartered to design. I think one of the most interesting pieces of this award was the speed. I mean, the RFP for the contract we're talking about now was just in June. You got an award three and a half months later. How did you manage to to turn this around so quickly using a traditional FAR-based contract? Yeah, thanks. Uh, there was nothing magic about the, our contracting approach, as you mentioned. You know, we, we found that the FAR is actually quite flexible and useful to get things done. And the reason we were able to be successful is because we have a very talented, dedicated, motivated team. 
And the reason we achieve that is because they all, we share a singular focus, and that's being the department's constructive disruptor for space. And the team knows that we need to get space capabilities out um, to the wife fighter at the speed of need. And the reason we can in inculcate that culture is because we are a lean organization and an independent agency. So that becomes much easier. And we know that we have to do our part. Uh, the department has given us a mission and an autonomy to execute it. We were resource and appropriated um, in FY20 to be able to get started. And we know that national defense is counting on us. So we could take longer in source selection, but we know that just um, eating into time to deliver the overall capability. So our team shares that singular focus in terms of speed. And so we're trying to do our part. And in all of this, you know, I have to acknowledge industry's role in that success as well. Um, we, we ask for a very quick bid and proposal periods, 30 days, the minimum that the FAR allows um, during sort of unprecedented times with COVID. And so we received multiple um, FFP offers in the case of transport and tracking, as well as uh, multiple cost reimbursable bids for the MSE and I. And we know that that is difficult, particularly for the FFPs to turn that around and get management approval. So I want to acknowledge your part in, in this quick turnaround for us to be able to make these awards and move out on, on the capabilities that we desperately need. And as I look kind of quickly through the performance work statement for, for this particular contract, my sense of it is you guys were not incredibly specific with your requirements. What I'm trying to say is you really didn't over-specify what you wanted the vendor to do here and gave them quite a bit of flexibility as to how to actually achieve the objectives. Am I, am I reading that right? Yeah, I think you are. Um, and that could be said um, more broadly for a lot of our acquisitions so far. We know exactly the, the capabilities we want to deliver, but we don't want to over-specify, right? We want to go out and find industry partners that share that vision and can come back and tell us uh, that, how they're, they're going to deliver it under firm fixed price contracts where it, where it exists or cost reimbursable ones. And so we did that here with MSCNI. That is the approach we took. You know, we, we specified the, the major responsibilities that we wanted from, uh, from the MSCNI contractor, you know, overall systems engineering and integration, defining and verifying all the interfaces, integrating gap filling and delivering the T0 emission system, as well as planning and executing the capstone to demonstrate and validate the mission system in, in FY23. And we, have, we also coupled that with um, some other approaches that we use, again, off FAR based. Um, we used uh, oral presentations to help understand uh, the mentality that the teams brought from their key personnel. And that was a significant added value to this approach as well. And I think as, as part of that flexibility, one thing you did here is you did the award first, and then you tell the vendor that they've got 30 days to develop a systems engineering and integration plan for how this is actually going to work. Is there some risk to that approach? I mean, what if they come back with a plan that the government thinks is no good? Well, certainly there's risk uh, for any approach, but the way we mitigate it is we actually asked for um, drafts of those plans during the actual proposal, and that was considered in our evaluation as well. Hmm. So from from the evaluation on through execution, we, we had some idea of the risk that we were accepting or that um, or were not accepting a, a, as proposed and as awarded. Is this is this kind of speed something you think we should expect to continue to see from SDA and in, in future acquisitions and future tranches as you can continue to build out this architecture? Absolutely. We know, again, we, we are in fixed schedules to deliver the systems. So 
we need to be very fast in, in stating our requirements, soliciting for those requirements, evaluating uh, proposals against those, and, and getting people on contract. The quicker that we can do the contracting piece, the more time that we give um, ourselves and our industry partners to actually deliver the systems. And in fact, uh, this morning we're releasing the T1 R, uh, the RFI for Tranche 1, um, right on the heels of awarding everything that we need for uh, Tranche 0. And that's because we know uh, the timeline to FY24 isn't much longer than the timeline to FY22. So we're going to put that out there um, so that we can start work on, on the next tranche and start thinking about that. Uh, tranche 1 is largely uh, a prolif proliferating what will be demonstrated in Tranche 0, but we're still assessing you know, overall military utility as well as technology and manufacturing readiness levels to define that Tranche 1 minimum viable product. We use our Warfighter Council for the military utility piece of that, uh, but the RFI supports the TRL and NRL market research that we're trying to do. So we're already thinking about Tranche 1 as we look forward to the future. Yeah, and just to, to, to flesh out how you're going to move through these tranches, it sounds like each successive one is going to build on what you learned in previous ones rather than wholesale replacement of the previous tranche each time you deploy a new one. That's right, and that's critical. In fact, we don't even have the luxury, as I just alluded to, in terms of the timing of Tranche 1, to wait for Tranche 0 to complete all the way and, and document lessons learned. So we're going to take the knowledge that we have through so far um, in executing Tranche 0. Um, we, we have some time before we actually release the request for proposals for Tranche 1. So we will take the lessons learned that we receive them, um, both in executing those contracts as well as um, what feedback we receive from the warfighter community and start immediately folding those into Tranche 1. So there will be some overlap in order to us to, to continue to keep the momentum going and deliver these capabilities. You gave some credit to your acquisition workforce a little bit ago, and I'm just curious how, how you built that up. I mean, you guys are a brand new agency, only about a year and a half old. How did you how did you build that workforce? Was it is it all organic at this point? Did you go poach good people from other elements of DOD or did you rely on, on other other DOD components contracting offices? How's that all work? No, we are fortunate to have our own um, contracting shop. And by shop, that is a, a small group of people. And when we started, uh, you're exactly right. We started out with a, a very small team. Um, we've grown a little bit um, over the past year as we ramp up towards our um, end strength of about 200 people. And that, that includes uh, contractor support. Uh, we, we have, we're fortunate to identify a, a very good uh, contracting cell chief. And we've relied on his network to pull in a few other folks. Uh, right now, we have three warranted contracting officers that are are helping us uh, move all of this along very quickly. And, and again, just looking toward the future and the sort of acquisition vehicles you might choose to use, do you foresee FAR-based contracts really being the, the primary thing you lean on? Or you know, when you actually need to develop a new technology or do some R&D, would some of the, the new popular things like OTAs and Section 804 authorities come into play? So we'll we'll look to use whatever is the best tool to get the job done. Um, we like I said, we found the FAR to be very flexible and accommodating for what we're trying to do, and can use that. Uh, we are authorized to use the, the Section 804 and other uh, transaction authorities, as you mentioned, and we'll consider those. In addition to those contracting types, our mission is to primarily to take 
technologies that are readily available that can be mass produced and applied to uh, a particular warfighting problem. But we do have limited resources that we can make small but pivotal investments on future tranches to do risk reduction. So we are releasing uh, a small business BAA, broad agency announcement to look for some areas where we can do uh, partnering with small businesses to reduce risk on future tranches. We have a standing broad agency announcement uh, that's more open uh, to, to large and small and other uh, partners to do risk reduction of those. So we do have an ability to do R&D, again, as it helps particularly with being a transition partner with other organizations that might be doing uh, more uh, R&D uh, type activities and folding those into our uh, spiral development model. Last area I wanted to tackle with you is, you know, you mentioned NRL being a, a part of, of Tranche Zero here so far. Talk about other partnerships that you're developing with other government entities and, and, and how relationships are going to matter as you continue to, to build out this architecture. Sure. Uh, the Naval Research Lab has been an excellent partner to date. Um, we, we established that MOA very early on with them, knowing that um, they would be able to help us deliver what we needed in Tranche Zero and help us take uh, some of those challenges and risks on, on our behalf. We are looking to partner with uh, other organizations. Uh, the Army is a key one where we're looking to uh, use their Titan system, which is a um, remote terminal that we'll be able to communicate with so they can distribute and disseminate uh, the information provided by our transport layer out even further to the, the the tactical edge. So that is one key partnership that we're looking at. And there's others that we're looking that are developing uh, space-based sensing capabilities that we're uh, looking to uh, incorporate into our uh, proliferated architecture. Uh, those agencies can deliver those capabilities, but if they have a way to communicate directly with our transport layer via optical crosslink, then we can fuse that data and also disseminate uh, that over uh, the tactical data links that we're already implementing. And when you look at a partnership with a with a program like Titan, I, I assume the main benefit for you guys in, in developing that early is mostly just to validate whether your architecture works with a real world system. Uh, that's part of it. And, and we also know that there's, uh, again, in our role as the orchestrator, we're, we know that we don't have to re, uh, reinvent that wheel. If uh, other other agencies or other partners are developing capabilities that overall provide uh, the, the warfighter the capabilities they need, we're going to look to incorporate that. And Titan's just one such uh, opportunity. Ryan Prim is Deputy Director of the Space Development Agency. We'll post more information about the mission systems integration and engineering contract we've been discussing and the other awards SDA's been working on to build the new national defense space architecture at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. Another quick break, and when we come back, some advice for agencies on how to handle identity management securely even when employees are teleworking. Dr. Alan Lang from the National Security Agency joins us. That's next on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbia. Thanks for listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. With a huge chunk of the federal workforce still working remotely, the PIV cards employees normally use to authenticate themselves on federal networks are not always an option. So many agencies have turned to commercial multi-factor authentication solutions as an alternative. But some of those solutions are more secure than others. 
To help agencies sort the good from the not-so-good, the National Security Agency has just released a guide to commercial multi-factor authentication. Dr. Alan Lang is Senior Subject Matter Expert for Vulnerabilities and Mitigations at NSA. He talked with me about the new information paper. I think for starters, maybe you can just spend a minute here talking about why NSA decided to release this publication at this particular time. I mean, is, is have you been getting a lot of inquiries from federal agencies and other organizations about multi-factor authentication in these interesting last few months? So, yes, uh, interesting last months is, is probably a good uh, uh, term to use. Um, the NSA put out a, a number of cybersecurity information reports uh, related to our customers uh, trying to continue working. Uh, a lot of them were pushed to do telework and things like that. So the multi-factor authentication cybersecurity uh, report was part of that. And I guess the main takeaway for me here is that in a pinch, almost anything is better than just a username and password, but not all multi-factor authentication schemes are created equal. And and just working backwards here a little bit, you specifically call out techniques like text messages, out-of-band SMS messages to your phone and some of the commercial biometric solutions that are out there as not being the best ideas. Talk a bit about some of the weaknesses there and and why you wouldn't necessarily use those as your first go-tos. Yeah, so the um, SMS and biometrics have have a uh, history of of being ineffective uh, at uh, binding the user that uh, is making a request to their digital identity. Um, The NIST report uh, on digital identity guidance describes the the rationale for that. Basically, you're you know, you're leaving your fingerprints and, and biometrics all over the place, um, and it's it's fairly easy to replicate. And then for the SMS, there's there's a, a ton of ways to impersonate uh, or to capture uh, the SMS messages. So that, that was considered not the best way of moving forward. And the publication, we should tell listeners, does include a list of uh, all the various uh, FIPS-approved solutions that are out there. We certainly can't get into them all in this venue, but but can you take us through some of the the characteristics that you want to be looking for when you're when you're actually selecting a strong solution? Given the the the, um, the need to get this out quickly, we we have some expertise here, but we wanted to to be fair, so we used uh, the criteria in the NIST digital guidelines uh, document, the recent update. And we use those criteria for our search of public websites that uh, vendors were advertising solutions that met these criteria. So they're the, the NIST webpage that has all the validated uh, crypto modules was was where we started. And then when we saw the vendors that were validating their products were advertising or, or indicating that they were compliant or trying to meet the, the criteria, then we went into those websites and, and validated those uh, products against the, the criteria. Can you take us through what you think the most, or this is almost a NIST question, but what the most important criteria are for determining whether you really can trust a multi-factor authentication scheme? So there's the um, the cryptographic uh, 
part of it. Every every multi-factor authentication involves some sort of cryptography, whether it's a one-time password or a random number generator. So the uh, the independent and standards-based validation that's provided by the FIPS 140-2 validation scheme uh, is is probably the most important piece of that. Uh, the validator, uh, the verifier of you know the the request also needs to be locked down, so they're not just accepting any uh, any claim. It has to be also cryptographically and and from a network security perspective, uh, it needs to be sound. Those two together, and you see um, the FIPS validation indications in the uh, in the report, as well as things like FedRAMP or the NIST 853, which is their security controls document. And as you also point out in the document, well, you don't point this out, but I'll point it out, not every agency is going to have the option to send government-furnished equipment home with every single employee, but you do point out that that is a better option if you can. Can you talk a bit about why that's the case? Yeah, so... The, the phrase I like to, to use is, is if you have a perfectly good sound uh, uh, authenticator and you put it into a perfectly compromised host, uh, whoever is controlling that host has access to those credentials. And so making sure that the credentials are in the control of the user, um, all factors of the that uh, uh, authentication solution should be under the, the exclusive control of the user that's representing it. So uh, government furnished equipment is managed uh, with the understanding of the specific threats, uh, and uh, it's more difficult to do that with uh, your own home computer. Uh, the, the information isn't there, or it's the work required to to maintain that uh, might not be being done regularly. Yeah, and and you also point out that if you don't have the option of sending hardware home with people, virtual GFE is is a pretty good second choice. Can you talk about how close we can get to a secure environment with that virtualized environment? So the uh, TENS program that is referenced in the document is, is an Air Force program that, that basically uh, takes your hardware and allows you to boot uh, to a known good image. Uh, so that deals with a lot of the issues regarding uh, you know, an intruder uh, that, that might have persistence on the hard drive, it basically forces the adversary to to start anew with with an attack against your system, and these you know these are refreshed periodically to to maintain uh, fairly good protection against the current threats as well. That's Dr. Alan Lang, senior subject matter expert for vulnerabilities and mitigations at the National Security Agency. One more break, and when we come back, the latest on how the Army is getting soldiers up to speed on the latest in artificial intelligence technologies. That's next on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serby. Back 
on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Army Futures Command is in charge of modernizing the Army. That includes making sure the workforce has the resources it needs. The command is providing educational opportunities at all levels to help soldiers understand and work with artificial intelligence. For more on how that's all working, Federal News Network's Scott Bassioni talked with Colonel Doug Maddy, the Deputy Director of the Army AI Task Force. The Army initiated what was then called the Artificial Intelligence Task Force uh, in the fall of 2018 and started uh, putting the team together. Uh, we hit IOC, or initial operational capability, around 1 February 2019. And so the overall effort was to you know, lead, coordinate, and synchronize the artificial intelligence capability development across the Army. And so, as you would imagine with the development piece, um, and we're centered here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is really one of the key areas across the country for expertise and thought leadership in AI, both with the academic partners as well as the industry partners that are here. As we worked through and identified those team members, the key thing that came out to us is there are so many opportunities for artificial intelligence and autonomy to be employed with our uh, capabilities that we needed to start developing a, a bigger bench, if you will, on how to do that. And so the key thing that we saw with that was uh, leveraging a number of different approaches because the team that we put together really does kind of cover the gamut of roles and expertise uh, to contribute. So with our effort um, of having, I'll say, domain experts, i.e. the folks that are the users of these capabilities embedded with the subject matter experts, whether it's machine learning, whether it's data science, data engineering, et cetera. Um, we wanted to cover all the different facets uh, of roles that we need to have. So how are you ensuring that your workforce is AI capable for the future? With our training approach, or I call it the workforce development, we really took a broad approach. Uh, first and foremost, uh, the Army is comprised of leaders. And so the initial effort that we put underway was to get after developing and educating the leaders across the Army. Uh, we did that by using uh, a couple of different uh, executive education style uh, courses and curricula. So uh, for artificial intelligence, one of the fundamental efforts that you have to have is, is data and data management. And so we led off uh, with a, a, a short course, if you will, that engaged a number of the Army's senior leaders uh, to walk them through kind of the first principles of enterprise data management. And then shortly thereafter followed it up, and we're actually still conducting this initial pilot uh, with a uh, data-driven leadership course where you, you think through or kind of walk the leaders through the different aspects of how do you, you know, develop the appropriate infrastructure you know, for data-driven en enterprises, what are some of the techniques and tools that are used for that? What are the requisite skill set that, you know, a leader would want to have in their organization in terms of these roles as we're kind of discussing? Uh, and then also, what are what are good projects? How do you define a project? How do you supervise or manage a project? And what are the, you know, most important, what are the results of these kinds of projects? But it's not just senior leaders that you're targeting for this program. There's a lot of other people that you're trying to bring into this fold of AI. Who else are you working with? On three other levels, you kind of get into those folks that are actually doing the artificial intelligence work. And so we have 
a group that we kind of call the AI professionals. And so just as you would expect, those are folks that have extensive education and backgrounds in this field. And so um, we were fortunate that we had a number of folks that had participated in the Army's advanced civil schooling programs uh, that we were able to draw from across you know, our force and bring them in so they're military as well as civilian. But then we also, as I mentioned, want to grow the bench. And so in doing so, we looked at various programs that were available. And, you know, over about the last 10 years, you know, most folks in industry have heard the terms like big data and data science, realize that it's fairly unique. It's a fairly unique individual that you can find that can do all of the requisite skill sets that are required to be proficient in this area. And so just like we do with the Army in other areas, we decided we were going to build data science teams. And so we identified uh, two different master's degree programs. Uh, we're piloting them at Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, both programs were rated number one in the world in their respective areas. And so we have one program that's focused mostly on the data analytics side of it. And so there's a number of military and civilians that are going through a 22-month program uh, to develop them as data analysts. And then uh, complementary to that is another program that's uh, the computational data science program in the School of Computer Science at Carnegie Mellon as well. But we've chosen a track that really, with the course of sequences, sets them up to be the premier data engineers that we would need. And so when we think about how do we develop data science capacity in the Army, we see that as the teaming of a data analyst with a data engineer. And so as they go through and complete that 22-month program, uh, following that education experience, which is very uh, applied in nature, so they'll work projects um, both with industry as well as potentially with uh, military uh, projects as well, but as they work through that program and then come out of it after graduation, then those, then we'll pair up that data analyst with that data engineer and have them work either in you know, development labs that the Army has, um, with some of our other modernization efforts, in, in potentially in some organizations here in, in our Army and in the institutional side as well as operational. So you have senior leaders, you have people who are basically AI capable, right? These really uh, educated people. What about the, the rest of the employees? We call them the AI technicians. And so um, that's, that's basically comprised of about a one-year intensive fellowship, if you will. Uh, we, br we bring in enlisted, warrant officers, commissioned officers. We're really trying to kind of spread it around, you know, the hierarchy of the military and uh, bring them in for a year. They are given um, extensive education opportunity, you know, a, a program that focuses on uh, cloud architecture and how to how to do cloud solutions. And so they'll be given an education, but at the same time, they're actually working with the, what I call the cadre here at the Artificial Intelligence Task Force in Pittsburgh on projects that we're working on. Uh, so they get that hands-on experience. And so they'll do that over the course of the year uh, to finish out the education and practical uh, application piece of this. And then you know, for the next two years, they can serve as AI technicians and we'll have them alongside of those data science teams to really help lay in the framework and the foundations of what's needed as we put 
um, artificial intelligence capabilities into practice. Um, the other role that the technicians have, though, again, going back to this notion of the Army is about leadership, is that those AI technicians will then, you know, in turn become facilitators for that cloud architecting course. And so each of those technicians will then facilitate a course to another, you know, potentially uh, 25, 30 individuals, and the course itself is already loaded to be distributive in nature. And so the instruction, if you will, can be delivered to anywhere, you know, that we have connectivity for our soldiers. That's Colonel Doug Maddy, Deputy Director of the Army AI Task Force, talking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. Earlier in the hour, we talked with Dr. Alan Lang, Senior Subject Matter Expert for Vulnerabilities and Mitigations at the National Security Agency. NSA just out with a new guide to help agencies securely authenticate their remote workforces. Also spoke with Ryan Prim, the Deputy Director of the Space Development Agency, on how SDA is moving out quickly to build a new space architecture for national defense. If you missed any part of this week's show, you can find the whole episode and all our past ones at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD or in our podcast feed. Subscribe to On DOD on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this week's edition of On DOD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbio. So long. You've been listening to On DOD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.